1946, uh, the Navy pulled into the harbor, a lagoon in Bikini. And a wee talk and bikini, sparkling necklaces of coral reef, studded with tiny islands in the mid-Pacific Ocean, are remembered largely because of bombs, 50 nuclear tests in 12 years. You know, what happened in the Marshall Islands is part of American history. Hi, my name is Octavia Roll. Welcome to Arkansas Atoll. In this episode, you're going to learn about a tragedy from the voice of a member of the Marshallese community. My team and I had the opportunity to sit down with Benedict Madison before the COVID-19 outbreak began. Benetik is the project specialist for youth, climate, and nuclear issues at the Marshallese Educational Initiative in Springdale, Arkansas. Benetik offered to share what he knows about the nuclear testing done on the Marshall Islands. Now, he's sharing it with all of you. So I guess to give a, a brief uh, uh, history lesson about the nuclear testing. Prior to the nuclear testing program, uh, the Marshall Islands were under Japanese control. Um, and after the United States pushed out the Japanese, that's when the U.S. decided uh, that they were going to use the Marshall Islands uh, for nuclear testing program. It's basically a, a strategic area for the U.S. And I think that's why, why uh, so many people around the world didn't know about the nuclear testing program was because it was a strategic area. And so they kept everybody away and made sure nobody knew about what they were doing in, in the Pacific, especially the Marshall Islands. The United States made the Marshall Islands a strategic area in order to keep the nuclear testing under wraps. This only makes me wonder what could have possibly been going on. They basically used it for 12 years to test 67 nuclear weapons. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, when they have the, the weapons, but you have to stick, what do you do? You know, we didn't have a, an organized government back then. And so the Marshall Island wasn't uh, a sovereign nation at that point. It was uh, more of like a a regional type of government in the region called Micronesia. And so we, we were basically forced to sacrifice our health and our islands for the good of mankind, basically. The uh, most powerful uh, hydrogen weapon tested by the United States was Castle Bravo on March 1st of 1954. After they detonated the weapon, there were fallouts from Castle Bravo that actually landed in a nearby um, island where there was a population living there. Um, and they, they thought it was snow, uh, but it was actually um, from the uh, evaporation of uh, two or three islands that were picked up into the air and scattered um, all throughout 
you know, wherever that, uh, wherever the fallout went. And uh, it caused uh, a lot of health problems. Uh, but also women were giving birth to jellyfish babies. Um, and so deformed uh, human beings. To the point where, you know, babies were born without bones. Some of them didn't even last weeks or months. Prior to, you know, the nuclear testing program, um, people lived up to their 90s, their hundreds. But now we have people dying at my age, people dying in their 30s, 40s. So Castle Bravo was a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb equivalent to a thousand Hiroshima's. Bombs the size of Castle Bravo with so much fallout must have created an enormous amount of contaminated waste. After they tested, you know, the last weapon in the Marshall, they sent these uh, 4,000 U.S. servicemen to Eniwetak to, to clean up the nuclear waste. Um, but basically what they did was they digged up a, a hole and then moved, moved uh, the nuclear waste into it and then covered it with a, an 18-inch uh, concrete. What Benetik is describing is a giant concrete dome, nearly 400 feet in diameter, that contains a bunch of nuclear waste. Surrounded by the pristine blue-green waters of the Pacific, viewed from above, the Renodome is a circular scar on the atoll resembling a science fiction landscape. It was built as a temporary container for the waste and is referred to as the tomb or coffin. Um, and so it, it, it has already cracked and it's, we're talking like, you know, many, many years ago. Cause you know, even our grandparents, you know, they complained about all oh, the, there's, there's cracks. And to this day, uh, it, it's, been, it's been leaking. Um, and it's leaking, you know, nuclear contaminants into the environment. And there's also the, the fear that, you know, if some big hurricane comes by the island, it can actually crack open that structure and release all of that nuclear waste. How do we find a, con uh, 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 a solution to, to this dome? And I've spoken to a scientist and he said, you know, the best solution right now is to just put more cement in to make sure that it doesn't release more, you know, of that nuclear into the environment. But in terms of like, how do we basically get rid of all of that. I, I really don't know the solution to that. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated issue. It didn't really hit me till like towards high school. And that's when I began, you know, learning more about climate change. Back then it was global warming. Um, I think towards the end of my high school year, we begin using the term climate change more often. Um, but I begin to do 
like more research into, you know, the nuclear legacy. Um, and I think it was a, a moment of awakening, uh, decolonizing my, my mind um, about the impacts of, I guess, colonialism in the Marshall Islands. Benedict helped my team and me understand a little bit of the history of the nuclear testing on the Marshall Islands. He also works on a daily basis to educate both the Marshallese and non-Marshallese communities of Northwest Arkansas. So I'm currently the uh, project specialist for youth, climate, and nuclear issues here at the Marshallese Educational Initiative, uh, mainly to reach out to the uh, youth population in regarding to opportunities and then with climate and nuclear issues um, to do outreach, um, educating the community about the impacts of the nuclear legacy as well as the impact of climate change in the Marshall Islands. And the purpose of it was to educate the non-Marshallese about um, the Marshallese community and our issues. I think uh, the first step is to educate. You know, what happened in the Marshall Islands is part of American history. And it's really frustrating and sad that, you know, when I open a history book or when my fellow Marshallese open history books, the only image of a bomb we see is the one in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But it's like, where's the other 67 uh, nuclear weapons that were tested? Um, and so climate change and the nuclear legacy needs to be part of the national curriculum here in the U.S. The nuclear legacy continues to affect the Marshallese community and is the reason why a large population of Marshall Islanders have immigrated to America. In the next episode of Arkansas Toll, we hear how some of these nuclear refugees came to Northwest Arkansas and we learn about the complicated status of the Compact of Free Association. Arkansas Atoll is a production of the Arkansas Story Vault Project at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History, Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Arkansas. Shane White, Neba Evans, Obed Lamy, Octavia Roll, and Sam Weitzel are the student producers for this podcast series. Sarah K. Moore and Colleen Thurston are the staff and faculty advisors to the project with the guidance of Dr. William Schwab. Funding for this Arkansas Story Vault project was provided by a generous donation from the Walton Family Foundation. Our sincerest gratitude is extended to the Marshallese community of Northwest Arkansas for sharing their stories with us. For ways to support them during the COVID-19 crisis, visit impactnwa.org. That's impact nwa.org The theme song used for this podcast series and so that I don't butcher the correct pronunciation in Mr. Tebin's own words is titled We'd like to extend our many thanks to Mr. Jorlick Tebin and producer Scott Steg for their musical contribution I'm
Oh, James, say a 